Good morning. Welcome to the First UU Church of Austin, Texas. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so the way we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is we turn to one another and welcome each other here. Will you say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning is from the Navajo Indians of North America. Beauty is before me and beauty behind me. Above me and below me hover the beautiful. I am surrounded by it. I am immersed in it. In my youth, I am aware of it. And in my old age, I shall walk quietly the beautiful trail. In beauty, it is begun. In beauty, it is ended. This congregation has a mission. We wrote it together. It guides our decisions It guides our metaphorical steps as we run our metaphorical race. It helps us know where we want to be. It throws into high relief the way we wish it were, but it's not. And sometimes it gives us instructions about how to get where we would like to be. We say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Our meditation reading this morning was written by Kathleen Matig. May the light around us guide our footsteps and hold us fast to the best and most righteous that we seek. May the darkness around us nurture our dreams and give us rest so that we may give ourselves to the work of our world. Let us seek to remember the wholeness in our lives, the weaving of light and shadow in this great and astonishing dance in which we move. Let us join together in an attitude of meditation and prayer where we speak and listen to God as we understand God or just listen to our inner wisdom or follow our breath as it goes in and out of our bodies or just enjoy the baby noises. We bring so much turmoil sometimes into a moment of silence. We bring so much pain and rage and sorrow 
so much hope and despair. We need centering badly. We need to find that still point where we sink our roots into the heart of compassion, where we gather strength from what is strong, where we feel ourselves held in the arms of love, where we hear the whisper persist. Let us enter into the silence together, understanding that in this congregation, the small noises of children and the sounds of life are part of the silence.
want you all to think about your life and what you would say your art is. Some of you all are makers of things. Some of you all are starters of businesses. Some are dancers. Some are painters. Some are makers of music. Some are chefs and some are gardeners. Some are teachers. Some make of parenting an art. Some do theater and some do justice actions. I reread a book this week called Art and Fear, and I put the cover on your order of service so that you could see it if you want to go look for it. Um, It has a lot of wisdom in it. It's a tiny little book, but boy, it tells some truths. I'm going to speak in broad brush strokes here, so I don't want to hook anybody's oppositional defiant disorder, um, which most of us share as Unitarian Universalists. Your line is, no, we don't. So I'm speaking in broad brushstrokes, so when I say everybody struggles with fear as they work to make their art happen, you can probably think of one person who doesn't, or you could say in your mind, I bet Mozart didn't because he was a genius. Um, Is your art going to be like Mozart? No. So let's get on with it. I'm sure there are genii, and uh, it's not most of us. That's not most of us. And let's talk about talent while we're at it, because most people say, oh, I just don't have the talent. Okay, Um, so Malcolm Gladwell wrote, as most of you know, that talent might be kind of a combination of interest and focus, but what really makes you a master of anything is putting in 10,000 hours. You put in 10,000 hours on anything, you're going to be a master of it. Me, I have put 10,000 hours into worrying (laughs) about my children, which I would not say probably is an art, but I'm good at it. (laughs) I can find something to worry about no matter what. But if you put 10,000 hours into your art, you're going to be a master of your art. And some people have this picture of an artist and they get, they get an inspiration. They see in their mind a dance they want to do or a painting they want to paint. They see in their mind a business they'd like to start. And in that flash of inspiration, they go to their laptop or they go to the studio and they work for a couple of days in a frenzy and there is a brilliant piece. And that's really not how it happens. There are flashes of inspiration for sure, and they come from someplace, and we're not really sure where, and we can't really make them happen. I've seen ministers on the ministers' pages fairly begging the muses for inspiration on a Saturday night. (laughs) You hear me. 
And many people have a great idea for a dance they'd like to do, or a play they'd like to write, or a book they want to write, or a business they want to start, or a garden they want to put in, or a marvelous lesson they want to teach, and they can't make it happen because they don't have the tools, they don't have the muscles, they don't have the experience, they don't have the practice. They just haven't done the necessary foundation work for the flash of brilliance to do them any good. So the art of art is intangible. The soul in art is somewhat intangible. But the actual making the art happen is pretty much a matter of practice and of not giving up. Keeping going is what gets you the farthest. And there are so, so many things that make you want to stop. It's hard, number one. Um, art happens in some cultures and some places and times in the context of community. And you have your people who are waiting for you to draw the bison on the side of the cave because they need to know how many <clears throat> they saw where. And there is a, a church person who's commissioned you to paint the ceiling of a chapel and so needs to get done. And there's a queen who's having a party and she needs some music and she's paid you half in advance and you have to come up with the music for her party. But right now in our culture, mostly art happens individually without a bunch of support and kind of alone. And so you're beset by fears as you do whatever you are doing. And the questions and fears can stop you in your tracks. You, you wonder, am I, am I any good? <clears throat> are the people who say I am, are they just being polite? Will I be a success? What does success mean anyway? And is this going to mean anything to anybody? Are people going to be mad at me? Will I be misunderstood? What's the point Am I just self-expressing? Is that enough? Is that selfish? Is anybody else going to get anything from my self-expressing? Am I telling universal truths? Or are these just things that are true for me? I started writing in journals, combing through my thoughts. And then I lucked into a gig at the local NPR station doing um, commentaries. And they wanted one every three weeks. And they said, make it 600 words and make it deep. And make it funny. <laughs> and turn it in every three weeks. So, I wrote with little kids running around the floor, scattering Legos. And I wrote while the kids were like, Mom, what's for dinner? And I wrote when I was sick, and I wrote when I was well. And when my inspiration ran dry, I wrote about what happens when your inspiration runs dry. Because <laughs> my piece was due. It's like sermons. I have to have something to talk to y'all about on Sunday morning. I can't come in here and look at y'all and say, can you come back Tuesday, please? Because I need an extension. <laughs> and later on, I was happy when I sent some of the NPR pieces to Skinner House, which is the UU publisher in Boston, and they published them, a handful of them. And then... Uh, a publishing house in the town where I was 
uh, published another handful of them. So I had, I had twins that year, twin books. And now I have six. And there are different problems when you have readers already. When you have readers who, who go, when's your next book coming? I need some more. Or uh, I liked your first ones better when you had little kids. <laughs> like, well, I can't have little kids now. I'm, I'm a nana. Um, or somebody can stop you for, for months just by saying about one of your maybe a little more acerbic pieces, uh, wow, I hope I never get on your bad side. <laughs> and I thought I had written it with a lot of affection. <sighs> and now I'm writing about my family, which is scary because... Um, Some of them are still alive. (laughs) And I hold on to what Anne Lamott said. She said if people wanted to be written about warmly, they should have behaved better. (laughs) And, and And they're all wonderful, really, I have to say. They're all wonderful. So writing, what I've learned is is very scary, Um, and you're putting yourself out there. You send a piece out, or you have a gallery show, and people are going to come who don't love you already, and they're going to say things about your work, or you go to a jewelry, uh, an art fair, and you have people come by and look at your stuff and go, and go on to the next booth, and you're like, what does mean? Is it good? Am I any good? it's hard putting your stuff out there, most of you know. It's it's really the most Buddhist thing ever to write. The best advice about writing is, is to write. You have to just sit down and write. Um, you don't have to build a writing shed. <laughs> you don't have to buy a special desk. Uh, me, I have to have a coffee house because I can't write by myself. I have to write with people around me talking, not to me, but to each other. And that sound that the uh, espresso machine makes, that's inspiration to me. I don't know why. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway built a countertop and put his typewriter on it. He always wrote standing up. If he hadn't written standing up, would we have any stories? We don't know. Everybody's got their little thing that they do. Annie Dillard says you just, you leave the house plants dry and you write ruthlessly, ruthlessly is how you have to do what you're doing in order to do a lot of it. And if you wait for inspiration, you're lost. People say, oh, I have a book in me. I know I do. Yeah, you do. Um, And so you have to like sit down and Right, to get it out. Or you could talk it into your phone. Sometimes um, you can fool yourself into starting something that's intimidating to start. And you can write or you can paint and you can go, I'm not really doing it right now, but if I were going to do it, I might put in something like this. And that doesn't wake up that mule inside that's going to go, whoa, you're trying to do something? Uh Uh-uh. 
Many artists quit because there's just too much mishigas involved. It's a Yiddish word that just means irritating, tiny little jobs, ordinary problems. One well-known artist kept a careful record. Apparently, he was a painter. And he found out that he actually painted maybe six or seven days out of every month. And the rest of the time was spent going to the post office, cleaning the studio, cleaning the brushes, buying the paints, meeting with agents, fundraising, begging for gallery shows, etc. And for a writer, it's looking up guidelines. Do they want one-inch margins or one-and-a-half-inch margins? Does it have to be Times New Roman? It's got to be 12-point type, double-spaced. I don't know. Everybody's different. A lot of things can make you stop. And some artists quit because they don't realize how much doing nothing time is involved, or their families don't realize how much doing nothing time is involved in creativity. Because you have to get your brain into that part of it, which I don't remember right now, but the neuroscientists among us will, that part that's the daydreaming brain. That's, you can't go straight from the problem-solving, decision-making brain into the daydreaming brain. It takes, it takes a couple minutes. And um, it takes some stillness. So if you want to know what my writing looks like, my process, it looks like this. <sighs> Only for longer than that. I won't bore you with the whole thing. So I take Fridays and Saturdays for sermon writing, and part of that is reading what I need to read for the sermon, and part of that is uh, putting down the things that stuck in my mind from what I read, and part of that is putting together those things in some kind of um, order and asking myself questions like, what would I want to hear if I were sitting in the pew and there were a sermon of this topic? What would I want to hear? What would not bore me to slobber? What would I find useful why did I ever think I could write about this? This is too complicated. It's too multi-layered. It's too personal. Is this going to be meaningful for anybody? Let me just watch one episode of this BBC detective series. Maybe one more. And then there's the time when you write furiously and put it all together and it's 16 pages and you go, oh man, it's got to be five. I got to cut this and cut that and cut this and and then you let it cook for a while, and then there's the panic. You have to have time to panic. And then there's the writing. So if that's how you do your art, you're normal. This is how everybody does it. The main thing is to feel afraid and do your art anyway. What will people think? Worry about that and do your art anyway. And keep putting in your hours. And I love this story that's in the book about a ceramics teacher who took her class at the beginning of the semester and divided it into two groups. And the group that was sitting on the left-hand side of the studio was the quantity group. And the group on the right-hand side was the quality group. And the quantity group was graded according to how much stuff they made. And she just took this scale and weighed their stuff, their output. And if you, 
If you did 50 pounds of stuff, you got an A. And if you did 40 pounds, you got a B. And the other group was the quality group. And they were supposed to just imagine the perfect peace and make it happen. And the story goes that at the end of the semester, the best pieces, the pieces that were judged the best, came from the quantity group because they had just done a bunch of art and learned from their mistakes. And some of it was brilliant. And the quality group mainly had just sat there and sketched and theorized about perfection. And they were left with wonderful theories and a bunch of dead clay. So you learn your art by doing, it, doing a lot of it. And Stephen King, on his book, is a wonderful book called On Writing. It's not scary at all. And he says, your first draft has to be the closed-door draft. It's the one nobody else will see but you, nobody but you. Don't show it to anybody, just show it to you. That's bad enough. And every writing teacher I know says the first draft, you have to be willing for it to be terrible. Just put something down. If you get paralyzed, someone after the first service told me about Camus' book, The Plague, which I had forgotten about, and there's an author in there who's just working on the first sentence, and he comes into the scene every now and then and goes, here's my new first sentence. Is this good? You can't, you can't get stuck on the first paragraph or the first sentence. You can't get stuck on the first line. If you make a mistake, so what? Fix it or use it. It might be better than what you were thinking about. If you try to... If you try to put a garden in all at once, it's not going to be as beautiful as a garden that you mess with for 10 years. And some things do just slip right out as if they were channeled. And other things come out a lot more messy. So I think of doing church as an art as well. And I think a lot of these same things are true of doing church in that you just have to keep doing it and not quit And probably in a month, there are 20 days of team meetings and then five days of hands-on justice. There are many more days of planning and talking and shopping than there are days of teaching and fellowship parties and amazing music and experiences that will help the people feel nourished and transformed. And we have our eyes on the, on the goal of beloved community, and that's where we want to go. But we have to learn to love the process. We cannot be kicked into despair. We cannot be ensorcelled by people who say, oh, it's a done deal. You shouldn't even fight it. It's a done deal. That's a sorcery spell, and we have to wake up from that. We have to love the cleaning of the brushes and the trips to San Antonio and the relationship building with other churches. And this is the way things grow and change. People have a lot of meetings. And then they can go to Castro's office and move a congressperson and get arrested like Peggy Morton did and some other people. And help Alidio and Hilda and Yvonne in that way. Malvina Reynolds said it. It ain't ain't nice to go to jail. 
but being nice doesn't work, then you have to do stuff that's not nice. And we learn how to do community in churches by doing a lot of it. And we do it clumsily at times. If you want to do 10,000 hours of community, it's not all going to be brilliant and wonderful. If you want the brilliant moments, you have to have the clumsy moments. And you celebrate your triumphs. So you build beloved community by doing church and having meetings and dancing and parties and painting and speaking and wondering and writing and singing and moving money and knocking on doors and registering people to vote and voting and getting good at love and compassion in the midst of our efforts. And it's a process we'll be engaged in for decades. And I, and I say decades because I could say centuries, but I don't want to be discouraging. And we're making a lot of church so that some of it will be brilliant. And we keep going because that's what all veteran artists have in common. They don't quit. Let us extinguish the chalice together. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These are hearts until we are together again. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Day is a breaking. In my soul, go shining. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.